Digital Marketing Radio, episode 147. How to turn a podcast into a book. DigitalMarketingRadio.com I'm David Bain and this is Digital Marketing Radio. Weekly interviews with online marketing gurus. Catch up with all the previous episodes at DigitalMarketingRadio.com The Big Interview with David Bain I'm joined today by a man who I interviewed first 18 months ago back on episode 54 of Digital Marketing Radio, where he shared some great tips on the art of storytelling in marketing. Since then, he's interviewed 163 successful and inspiring entrepreneurs for his very own podcast, and he's about to publish a book on the subject. Welcome for the second time to DMR, Matthew Turner. Hello, David. Thank you. My gosh, 18 months, is it really? It is. And I was also thinking, actually, it's for the third time because not only were you on episode 54, you were on the Christmas special as well. And you're back here again. You just can't keep me away. I just can't. Yeah. So (laughs) go away. No, no. (laughs) Oh, well, in a few, you know, in 30 minutes or so, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can find Matt over at turndog.co. But Matt, um, did you know that your destination was to write a book? at the start of your podcasting journey? Well, it's strange because um, like the podcast came after the book, really, in many, in many ways. I started working for myself. I, I set up my business and I, I wanted to fit, start writing. Um, well, not start writing. I wanted to start writing more nonfiction. Up until that point, I had um, nearly completed my first novel, so I wanted to focus more on my writing, both um, fiction and nonfiction, and to then also do marketing consultancy, get into like the online world. I didn't really know exactly what it would entail at the time, and very early on in this process, I decided I wanted to interview a lots a lot of entrepreneurs um about their greatest mistake and how they transformed it around with an idea of a book and i thought it might make a good podcast or tv show or blog series or something i didn't really know in the beginning but i just thought it would be an amazing journey that would not only help other people but help myself personally too i can't believe i got it the, the wrong way around there i was thinking that you started your podcast with the book in mind possibly but it was the other way around Intriguing. It was. I mean, I'm a I'm a writer, you know, by nature. So the majority of things that I do, I'm always thinking about, you know, can this be a book? How can I turn this into a book? Is it going to be something else? But I didn't, to be honest, even in the very beginning, I knew the success of day was going to be a book, but I just didn't know in what kind of form. And I just felt like it would have so many more avenues towards it. And definitely a podcast was something and in the beginning i i didn't want it to be just a an audio podcast i did a lot of um video ones so i kind of put them on things like youtube but then eventually it did become you know it just for a bread audio podcast and numerous other stuff so it's gone through quite a few iterations over the period i mean i spent two and a half years interviewing 163 people so i trialed tested got bored tried new things and and wow yeah it was a it was a journey beyond journey that's a journey and a half yes Mm, it really was (laughs) so i mean i should say at this stage that this isn't going to be a standard episode of dmr so um, check out episode 54 if you want to hear matt's opinions on topics like software i couldn't live without or his answers to the this or that round but um on this episode we're going to be just focusing more on matt's turning of his podcast into a book or vice versa. So um, 
Matt, did you find that your ability to interview people well improved as episodes went by? Oh my God, yes. Oh yeah. Because I've, I'd, I'd done <laughs> Do- a little bit in the past. I'd, um, I'd dabbled with podcasting in the past. Um, I used to work for a rugby club. Um, Halifax Rugby League and we used to do like fax TV you know pre pre and post match interviews you know for the the players and stuff so I've done a little bit of interviewing in my time but not much and I I've had to like re-watch and re-listen to every single one of the interviews that I've done for the book and the early ones, I'm not going to lie, they're a little bit cringeworthy. At least I find them cringeworthy. But yeah, I, so I, I found myself more comfortable around people as the journey went on because I'm interviewing people, for the most part, who I admire, people who I read, follow, watch. So the nerves are always jangling in that department. So I found myself getting a bit more easy and comfortable in my own skin around these people who I do admire and look up to. But just the whole essence of knowing when to listen, when to talk, when to just shut up. I realized I rambled a lot with my questions early on in the process. I still feel I do that to an extent now, but I'm markedly better compared to what I used to do. I would ask a question, but then would carry on for like another three sentences. And it's just like I look back and like, just shut up. So yeah, yeah, in terms of being a better interviewer, I would say yes, massively, massive, massive improvements between kind of the first one and well, not even the 163rd. It, I, I was marked better by probably the 30th, 40th, 50th. I think you learn to embrace silence as you progress in your podcasting journey. Yes. <laughs> the dramatic I pause. Struggle with that. I always did. I mean, I I used to always struggle with it. You know, going on dates with girls. You know, those awkward first dates where there was a bit of silence. I would always try and fill the silence with something, and it's usually just me coming up with some kind of random rambling fact, and it's not usually that good. So yeah, I've I've certainly become more comfortable, although I wouldn't say overly comfortable with silence. But but yeah, it makes a huge difference just to to know when to just allow a bit of silence to settle in because you know that your guest sometimes needs a few seconds to just think and reflect on mm. what they've just said and if you're constantly putting in then the next question then it's not really giving them much chance to do anything other than just fire back things your way i think if you're interviewing someone or you're on stage then two seconds actually seems like 10 seconds when it's Absolutely. silent it does and back was probably my biggest thing i would ask a question no one would answer within the first millisecond so i'd be like oh i'll just i'll just talk a little bit longer yeah and it's just a big no-no and especially with podcasting because you can go back and edit the episode and i'm sure you know yourself that um you can much more easily edit an episode if you're giving that period of silence rather than actually rambling on and having too many ums and ahs and it becomes a nightmare to edit Absolutely. I must say, interviewing people for the, for the success of mistake has helped eliminate a great deal of ums and ahs and uh and so much so. Because, yeah, it is hard to edit when you've got a lot of those in. So you quickly learn to make your life easier in the edit, to just 
get as much out of them to just rid as much of it as possible because one bit horrible to listen to you listen back and if all you i mean i'm sure you've had guests who do a lot of them in an hour and it just makes it all the more difficult to just listen to it and that's not good so when i'm listening back to my own and i'm hearing myself on an hour and it's just yeah it drills home to this idea of don't um don't ah uh, just take a second to allow yourself to think a bit of sounds is fine but for the most part, as a host, you're there to just ask a bit of a question and to shut up. Let them do the talking. And then you just chime in and be part of a conversation from time to time. But people don't log in and listen to you talk for 30 or 40 minutes unless that is what the podcast is all about. So did you edit every episode yourself personally? Yes. Yeah, I have. Um, I, I would quite often do the editing in final cut pro a lot of the time as well because like i say i would try and do both audio and video and um, towards the end i would just do audio but i still had all the videos too so i kind of used them for both so so yeah i'm a bit more comfortable editing video to be honest than okay. audio because i do a bit of and um, sort of videography and stuff as part of you know what i do so a little bit more comfortable with the video editing than just the audio although there is a podcast that is being done specifically for the launch of a successful mistake. It's going to be happening probably about sort of seven, eight weeks before launch, overlapping and into launch. And that's being edited by someone who I know who's an audio engineer. And I just, one, didn't have the time to do it myself. Two, felt like he would produce a much better standard. Okay. So, I mean, we've heard that um, it's made you a better interviewer. How else did the process change you? Oh, in so many ways, in pre in every way, to be honest, because if there's one thing interviewing so many people is going to do, it's just open your eyes to what like successful people, people who are genuinely more often than not ahead of you on the journey. So the way I looked at it, and it was one of the big driving force to get into this process from the absolute get-go was to see it as an opportunity for me to get lots and lots of mini coaching calls. I mean, I'm talking about people who more often than not uh, will charge hundreds per hour, in some cases thousands per hour, for you to jump on a call with them and just ask their advice and for them to give it. And I got to ask them about their greatest business mistakes. So I'm just sitting back and saying, okay, tell me your story tell me what happens and then tell me how you turned it around, what you learned from this, the lessons learned. So I was just getting time and time again, huge value bombs, huge nuggets of wisdom that I would have to spend a lot of money on. And I, I kind of guesstimated it at around $83,000 worth of free coaching or consultancy or whatever you kind of want to call it. Did you forget that you were recording things. a podcast at time and actually just, um, sometimes just treat uh, treat it as a coaching call for yourself completely pretty much every time yeah i tried to <laughs> especially when i got more comfortable in the process um as we just said once i kind of got used to you know beat more comfortable in my own skin i just would i would treat it as okay i am recording for this but hey not all of these have to become podcast episodes not all of these are going to have to necessarily be shared I'm just going to jump on here if this ends up being 15 minutes or 20 minutes or an hour and a half it's all good 
if it's if it's good enough for you know to actually share online great if not it's just going to be for me it's going to be really valuable for the book and i did i just tried to treat them as much as possible as i'm having a conversation with someone this is my opportunity to just pick their brain they're going to be telling me stories if i come across something that i personally find valuable just dig a little deeper and i would try and end every single call with them just saying like what what can you advise me like just offer me a little bit of advice i suppose a bit cheeky with it but but yeah just really keen to get as much from it as possible and it was huge because these are people who have been there and done it and even if they're on you know a similar level of me because some of them were some of them aren't necessarily like super experienced got millions in the bank not all the entrepreneurs were of that standard but even if they were on a similar kind of level to me similar journey i'm getting a different perspective different people figuring a different things out at all times so i'm just constantly getting these little nuggets of wisdom thrown at me on a daily basis and i was just able to take it all in and go right i now know what to do if this happens to me i'm not saying that i was able to avoid them all i still made a lot of mistakes that i talked and came across during the interviewing process but i think that's okay i think sometimes you do need to make your own mistakes you need to kind of do it on your own but then I had this knowledge to sit back and say, but this is exactly what such and such told me about. This is how they did it. This is how they overcome it. It's like, it's fine. Like I'm not, you know, peculiarly here. I'm not stupid because I've made a mistake or because something hasn't gone right. This is how it goes. So it's taught me a lot about what success, it means to be successful and how to define what success means to you. It's helped me appreciate things like mistakes and failure and adversity in a more positive light. It's not to say it's any easier. It's still hard if you're struggling, if you cock up. It's still tough, but it's helped me appreciate all these things and just given me a bit of a sounding board. I'm able to jump onto things. I'm able to email people I've met and say, I'm doing this. What do you think? And yeah, it's brought so much value to my life. I mean, I can't really put, like I say, I, I think it was around about $83,000 worth, 85, 86, something like that in terms of, coaching call value but i can't put a price against the amount of value and quite frankly awesomeness that i've got on list so if you had to do it all over again is there anything in particular you would change about the way that you went about doing things oh god yeah pretty much everything <laughs> i mean it's like anything is it i feel nothing's perfect you're never going to be completely happy I, um, for a long period, did everything manually. So I did, um, today I use a CRM software called Contactually. Mm. Fantastic um, to just kind of, well, for building templates, having reminders of when to speak to people, all of this kind of thing. For the most part, I just put everything in like a, Evernote document and I would just try and manually track who I sent to and would follow up and I was fairly good but there was duplications and everything so the first thing I would do is certainly just invest a little bit more into software and tools and coming up with a more definitive automated process where I'm saying I want David Bain as part of a successful mistake I'm going to add his name and his email into contactually I'm going to put him into a program. I know that I'm going to have to email him, you know, three or four times over a five or six week period until I either get him or I don't. And then I'm going to be able to like 
tag him and bucket him and make sure that I'm just staying on top of it all. And I would have saved a lot of time. I would have probably been able to track everything a great deal better. And I would have just been able to see what does and doesn't work more. And I think got more people involved. It would have been the more efficient thing. And that 163 number might have been, you know, 200 or 250. So yeah, I feel if I'd done it all again, I would be more organized and more structured. I would use amazing tools that are available to us to its full advantage. And I think I would also have um, probably been a bit more strategic and said, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to actually book in and try and do, you know, three or four of these interviews a week. And I probably would have been doing a, you know, a regular podcast from the absolute beginning because I didn't start sharing bees online until a few months in. And then I would share them in bulk and then I'd get busy or I'd move on to something else. I didn't have anything necessarily structured. And I did then eventually do a solid year of podcasting, which was good. And I, I got a lot of value from that. But I think from the get go, I would have probably have involved someone else and said, right, I'm going to do these interviews. I'm going to keep the videos for me, but I'm going to send the audios to you. I want you to edit them. I want you to do what you do with them. We're going to turn it from a podcast from the beginning, because if I'd have done that from the beginning, I would have had a podcast that would have been four years old now, nearly. Mm -hmm. And there would probably have been somewhere in the region of 200, 300, 350 episodes in all of that. It would have given me a great task to re-interview people have it not just be about the success and mistake, but other things. I think I would have had a greater platform had I have taken podcasting and sharing interviews in the here and now. Um, so yeah, I would have definitely done that differently too. So if someone says to you, wow, um, you know, 160 odd um, interviews you've published there as a podcast and turning it into a book, that sounds like a wonderful content marketing strategy. If someone is thinking of doing that for their business in general would you say that could be an effective and perhaps the best thing for them to be doing from a content strategy or is this something that is just has just been right for you to be honest i feel it there are i always look at things how many wins can i get so how many birds can i kill with a single stone when i approached a success mistake i thought at the end of it I'm right. First of all, I want to write this book because it's a book I need to read. So I'm doing this for me first and foremost. I feel like I personally am going to learn so much from involving all these people in this book, podcast, whatever it might be. I'm going to personally learn a lot. I also feel at the end of it, I'm going to produce this book and these podcasts and these sessions and all these other things that are going to help other people. And I also feel that by including these individuals, these are fantastic ways to network and connect with the kind of people I want to connect with. They in turn are going to introduce me to more people, whether I interview them for success mistake or not, it's going to help grow my network. And yes, while you're producing all this content, you have a very specific something that is allowing you to build your audience. So I'm just looking at it and right there, just there, four things there are four wins there there are four birds being killed with a single stone and 
I probably didn't appreciate that enough in the beginning. Or if I did, I didn't kind of lay that down on the table and go, okay, I'm going to do this. And if I do it in this way, this way, this way, and this way, I'll be able to funnel it all down into, you know, amazingness. But I was young and I was naive and I, you know, I was new to the business. So I, I'm not going to get it all right. So yeah, if I was to tell someone now, like, can you use this approach for a podcast, a blog, content marketing in any form 100% yes and I think more and more people should be doing it not just necessarily trying to create those lists where you know you you get a quick one quote from 55 expert marketers and create a blog post they're fantastic but they have a limit I think going into depth and trying to think right how many wins can I get from this approach you are personally going to be able to learn a lot. You're going to share a lot to your audience. You're going to be able to use it as an audience builder. You're going to be able to include other people, connect, turn the entire process into more of a collaboration. I think there's a lot to be said about collaborating. You can get a lot when you start collaborating with people. And it just opens up so many doors. And yeah, from a content market, I mean, like I say, if I'd have done this all again, I feel like I could have involved other people, had more strategic avenues. And this could have been something that had place for blogging podcasting video so much more and it would have all stemmed from the fact that i'm just jumping on skype or blab or whatever having a conversation like this and just asking someone i want to hear your biggest business mistake and how you turned it around let's chat there's so much that can be taken from that and that's that topic you can take that this process and use it for any topic you can use it for internet marketing. You can use it for relationships. You can use it for tools. You can use it for absolutely anything. It's just a case of, right, who do I want to reach? Like, what kind of person do I want to speak to and connect with and, and try and get standing shoulder to shoulder with them? Build something, a book or a podcast or whatever, a blog, and think, right, how can I now use this and leverage it? to make sure that I'm able to get these people involved in the process and just take it from there. I love the way you started out there, actually, by saying, I did it for me to begin with. I think um, a lot of people can learn from that statement by just um, focusing on what really turns them on, you know, what, what their true passion is, where they want to learn, and then producing content around those areas. And the content that is produced as a result of that will be outstanding because they're 100% passionate about it. So uh, absolutely the right way to do it there as far as, far as as far as I'm concerned. But you've pointed out lots of areas that um, you believe you could have done it better. What are your plans for after this? Can, can you actually see yourself doing a similar project again, but this time trying to do it you're absolutely spot on in terms of actually producing a podcast episode for every single episode and, and, and so on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I haven't kind of got a, as far ahead yet to think what my next kind of major project will be. The Successful Mistake is a book and it's a big part of the world that I'm creating around like the successful brand. But there's also going to be a, a community and a program behind the Successful Mistake of the Successful Mindset program. And that's all also lead to the back end of the year, successful mindset costs. So this whole idea of, again, you know, trying to kill as many birds as possible with one stone. I started writing the book and getting all these interviews and I knew there was so much more 
I'm wanting to revisit certain interviews and kind of turn them into more masterclasses. I want to, you know, repurpose more things. I want to take things to the next level and try and get as much as possible from the amazing content that I've got and share it in a way that is going to bring a lot of value with people. So there's probably another couple years of my life that are going to be directly <laughs> hinged around, you know, what the success mistake is ultimately all about. But yeah, going forward, I absolutely feel there's going to be more opportunities whether it's going to be linked to the successful mistake and kind of kept in a in a similar brand you know it, it just, you know like the lean startup brand you know like there's been offshoots and it always kind of comes back to the same brand mm. you know the same kind of child i don't know whether it'll be linked to that who knows i've not got a far ahead but um but i do i do love the idea of doing more books and projects like this where i'm involving other people I feel this book, by definition, is written not by me, but by a lot of people. I've been trying to involve people in the writing of the book with, you know, be readers and everything like that. I've involved chapter partners because I want more people involved in the book. Like, it's me maybe writing it. It's me, you know, the name is the author. But for the most part, like, there'd be nothing without these 163 people and all these other individuals who are part of it and i just love that kind of collaboration so in the future whether it's another book course a program podcast whatever it might be i love this idea of involving people and making it collaborative again like you just said it needs to start with something where i'm doing it for me i'm doing it because i feel like i need this it's going to bring a lot of value for me because i feel if you're going to be selfish like that like that's a good kind of selfish because you're saying, I need this. Like, I need this. I, this is something that is going to bring value to me first and foremost. I'm going to pour my heart and soul into it. And if you do that, you're going to serve other people and bring a lot of value to other people too. So it's got to start there. But then once I get to that, that's when I start thinking, okay, yes, how many people can I involve? Maybe it won't be 163 next time. Maybe it'll only be 50 or something. Who knows? But who knows? It could 163, like 163 is a bit of a random number. Why did you decide to stop at that? I just got to a point where I was like, if I don't stop now, this will never get written. I need to like call it done. And it just it ended on 163. It, it I, felt I, done at 163. I, I got to a point where I wanted to at least get up to 150. And then once I got to 150, I still had a few irons in the fire and it kind of turned to like 155, 160, or mm. and then 163. So yeah, I love the idea of involving other people. And then yeah, next time around, absolutely, I'll be thinking, right. So this is going to be a book where I'm interviewing, you know, let's say 75 people, and I'm going to involve this person and this person, this company. How can I leverage it from the absolute get-go? How can I kill as many birds as possible from the get-go? And I think a podcast and using things like, you know, a YouTube channel, whatever it might be, there are so many ways. I mean, Blab, Snapchat, there are so many ways to get out there. And I feel there's just a strategic hat that needs to be put upon yourself when you're starting a project like this. Because, for instance, Blab didn't exist when I started doing these interviews. But potentially, if it had, and I did all of those interviews like you're doing now over Blab before then, you know, taking them and recording them elsewhere, I could potentially over that period of, you know, 18 months, two years when I'm doing all these interviews, grow a Blab audience by, you know, the tens of thousands. 
or if you do it on something like Snapchat or anything. So there's always that opportunity where you, when you're doing the research, when you're actually gathering what you need to then create that book or that podcast, whatever it might be, there are opportunities for you to gather an audience from the absolute go. And I just didn't do that. And next time I will, I'm pretty damn determined to do that. Yeah. So who did you like interviewing the most? Oh, there's, I, I don't have an absolute favourite, but there are certainly few who come to mind. Um, there are just certain people who I spoke to who re really lit a fire within me. AJ Leon is one who's the founder of Misfit Inc. Just one of those people. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you ever meet anyone who knows AJ, they will have plenty of stories. I've been on quite a few interviews where he just came up and then we it became a bit of an AJ love fest. He's just one of those people where he lights a fire within you. He really gives you that kick up the butt, makes you want to do stuff. So he was someone who, even though his story, like his story was good, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, one of the more insane ones, but it was just his, his manner, his demeanor, just amazing. Michael O'Neill of um, the Solopreneur Hour as well, just absolutely blew me away. Such an inspiring guy. His story was powerful beyond belief. And again, the way he delivered it, the passion that oozed from him. I, I did that interview at like 10 o'clock at night and I didn't get to sleep till about two o'clock in the morning, I seem to remember, because I was just buzzing. He just kind of whew, really got me going. So yeah, I loved Michael O'Neill's. Dan Miller is another guy who's just an amazing story, such a generous and kind guy, and just blew me away with his wisdom and left a huge, huge impact onto me. Um, oh, who else? Pamela Slim was a really great one. I really loved Pamela's. Nally Sisson, Marianne Cantwell, who is the founder of Free Range Humans. Her story was all around conformity and that difference, you know, of like conforming and non-conforming. And it just struck a chord with me. I'd gone through similar kind of issues in that regard, probably only three or four months beforehand. So it just really related to me. And she's such a bubbly personality. I mean, the list could go on. There's so many. Oh, okay, so so here here's another one. This is a question that um, I didn't know whether or not I should ask or not, but I'm going to ask anyway. <laughs> Who did you like interviewing the least? Well, I can't say that, can I? No. <laughs> but you do have no, someone in mind. Again, not someone. There were one or two who were who weren't as great, and who knows why. Maybe it was a time thing. Maybe I just got them on a bad day. Maybe they're just not that great on camera or, you know, over audio. Um, but yeah, there were a few which were underwhelming. And sometimes it's those where you are so excited and you're just thinking, man, this is going to be good. Like this guy or this girl's got a great story, an amazing brand. I just have a feeling this is going to be a great one. And then you just kind of left a bit underwhelmed. There, there's only like a couple where I truly walked away from it and said like i can't share this like i can't turn this into a podcast or anything it's just it's just not there like it's not good but even to be fair the one or two which were like that they they were still useful for the creation of a book i was still able to like look at my highlights that in terms of a podcast episode would have been horrible but useful for me to actually write the book really good because I was still able, I was still making my notes. I was still able to kind of get a certain amount from them and go, okay, well, I kind of know where it's coming from. So there wasn't any which I, I just kind of walked away from and thought that was a waste of my time. 
but yeah, there were a couple, unfortunately. So what was the most underwhelming aspect of those couple, the fact that you expected them to, good and, to be good and perhaps they didn't prepare or treat you as seriously as you would have wanted to be treated? Um, I don't necessarily think it was that. It more, more a case of you come with questions and we talked about this idea of, you know, being comfortable with silence, but there's a limit. You know, you can ask a question <laughs> and you're just getting yes or no answers or you're getting very little from it. And you're looking you're like, I've asked like all the questions I've got planned. And we're like six minutes into the interview. What I like, Jesus, like this guy's just not giving me anything. And I'm, and I'm sure you've probably, I don't, maybe you haven't, but I'm guessing you've had interviews like that where you've been asking questions and they just haven't been given enough. And you, yeah. it's, it's hard to know if it's your questions. It's hard to know whether they just aren't that bothered. They, they didn't really know what they were doing. Or maybe they're just kind of shy and shirt. they just don't know what they're saying. But yeah, there were a couple where, yeah, you listen back to it and you think, this guy just gave, gave me nothing. And it's weird. So what method are you using to publish your book? Are you self-publishing? Are you uh, Have you got a book deal with someone? Yeah, all self-published. Potentially, you could look into um, traditional book publishing at some point, you know, for, for foreign rights and everything of that nature. But I like the freedom. Um, it would have been a definitely a difficult book to write had it been a traditional one because it has been ongoing for so long. And I've never written a book like this before. I know how to write fiction. I know how to write a novel. And, I, and to an extent, I know how to write nonfiction in terms of very standard nonfiction where you you you're saying it all from your experiences you know so if you create a guide or you know you're doing blog posts but this was something where i had to you know take a journalistic approach in a sense by bringing all these interviews together and deciding which ones should be used which ones shouldn't be how to you know how many is too many but at the same time i didn't want it to be like a journalist wrote it i wanted it to be really hitting the nail on the head when it came to like narrative and storytelling which is what we talked about in our last interview i'm all about storytelling i'm all about narrative i wanted to try and create something that felt when you're reading it a bit of a, a crossbreed between fiction and non-fiction where i'm trying to do it where you know it's it's being told from me it's very much a narrative it's like me telling you all these stories it's me guiding you through these seven stages but I'm touching upon in each little mini chapter because each chapter is broken up into like a mini blog post of between 800 and 1200 words. So okay. each one's each one of these has like a beginning, middle and end. Each one touches upon one or two of the entrepreneurs interviewed, but the entire thing reads as, you know, me kind of regaling a tale and just picking on a couple of quotes here and there and, you know, introducing you to their story. And then within a chapter, there's seven or eight of these little mini blog posts. So again, that chapter has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and needs to flow throughout. And then in each stage, there's a few of these chapters. So again, each stage has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and flows throughout. So it was a it was a difficult challenge. It was it was a difficult project in that sense. It, I had to learn a lot, but thankfully, I'm I'm working with an editor now, and they've been giving me some great feedback, and they're saying you've you've created something really good. This is going to change lives. This is amazing. But we've still got a bit of work to do. We're still fine-tuning. The, the launch isn't for a little while yet, um, coming up in June. And I'm building all the back end and everything, so it's all getting prepared. 
but I'm excited to tighten the book up to an extent where it is as perfect as it can be. I'm always intrigued um, at other people's strategies, content marketing, or other forms of, of business strategy, really. And um, back in, we're talking late March 2016 here, and back in December 2015, um, I ordered a pre-order version of The Successful Mistake from yeah. Publishizer.com. Uh, yeah. um, so uh, I'm one of your pre-orders, looking forward to getting it. So what is this Publishizer service then? Okay, so Publishizer, quite simply, is like Kickstarter for books. Uh-huh. So it's a, it's kind of like a, a, a other sort of platform slash crowdfunding. It's classified as crowd publishing. The whole idea is you create rewards, rewards like tiers. So you can say, right, for $17, you can get a like first edition, early advanced, copy of the book in paperback and as well as that you will also get the audio book so for 17 dollars you'll get like say 40 dollars worth of value the next tier might be you know 25 dollars and you get x y and z but it's gonna be like 60 dollars of value and it goes up to you know like the sponsorship levels where it's like several hundred or maybe several thousand dollars and yeah you you set a goal so for instance five thousand dollars and if you reach it fantastic it's considered successful but even um it with publishizer they changed it recently where even if it wasn't a successful campaign you know you can still kind of get the money from it so i didn't plow as much effort into the campaign as i probably could have done and it was just down to resources and time and it was i used it more as an opportunity to try and get a few early pre-orders to kind of gauge interest and and yeah, have a bit of a platform where I'm now able to get like you are going to be among the first people to get the book. Mm. I will be writing the book. Like when the book is printed, I will be doing a first run. And including that first run is going to be everyone who features in the book. So you, alongside all the people who featured in the book and everyone else who pre-ordered, will be getting your copy at least. My aim is at least four or five weeks before launch day. And this kind of all plays into the strategy because that gives you a bit of time to read it, hopefully kind of leave a review ahead of launch. And yeah, just kind of get any early feedback, you know, from things like if something's wrong or something needs tweaking, then um, up until the big day, it can be done. So, so yeah, pre-ordering in that sense was really exciting. It's, it's exciting to have a certain amount of early um, readers on board. And you will probably get in a few more emails from me recently because I'm just about to fine-tune <laughs> all the all the sort of funnel and the marketing material around it. So it'll be, I'm excited to kind of share that with you um, before everyone else, because, well, you've been an early reader, you know, that's, that's a cool thing. So yeah, it's exciting it. getting <laughs> access to something uh, prior to um, the general public. That's always a, always a good thing, but um, this service publishizer, do they actually kind of print the books or is it another service you have to use for that? No, they're, so yeah, Publishizer is very much just like a platform and there's certain tiers within it. So if you reach certain levels and sell certain amount of copies of books that they um, introduce you to different kind of publishers. So you could potentially get a traditional published deal from being successful on Publishizer. And I suppose for thinking around that is if you run a publishizer campaign and you're in two minds like, okay, I want to do this book. Maybe it's not written yet, or maybe it is, but you're not sure if you want to self-publish or traditional publish. If you run a publishizer campaign and absolutely boss it, 
and sell you know five six seven eight hundred copies of a book over a few week period that's a really good sign for a publisher to think okay well this book's got legs people are liking it he's this guy or girl's either got an audience or they don't have an audience but they're producing a book that is like hitting a nerve so the publisher sees that as a chance to just kind of gauge how good a book is and how popular it is so there's certain levels within publishers if you're successful then you get introduced to certain publishers but for the most part if you get your money then it's up to you to go away and you know do all the other nitty-gritty so whether that's then you know giving it to a publisher or some kind of service you know doing it on your own back i'm i'm very well, let's let's just say I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to my books. I like to have a really big involvement in everything just because it's my baby. So I want to know, like, I want to have a say in who the editor is, what the design of a book is going to look like, you know, who's printing it. I want to really kind of turn it into a, an emotional and touch point as often as possible. So, yeah, it's important for me to do that. But, um, but yeah, there are services out there that, allows you to use something like publishers and say okay this book is good a thousand people have ordered it here take it now make it into an actual thing so is it create space or something like that that you're actually using to publish the book um well the book will be available on places like amazon in in digital format so that's easy once you kind of got yeah. the book written and you've got the right software turn it into a, a digital book is easy the print book, there's, there's kind of two kinds. So if you are buying a book from Amazon, at least in the initial sense, it will probably be using CreateSpace because that is a pay-as-you-go kind of model. So if you go land on Amazon, buy a book, it basically gets an order sent to CreateSpace and they print that one book. So it means you're not getting as much. Um, well, I, I talk about you're still paying the same, but me as an author, I'm not going to be getting as much money from that order because it's a less cost-effective model but it's good because it means you don't have to buy a thousand books ship them to amazon and then hope that you sell them but the idea being is once you get a bit of movement and you start regularly get you know selling say 100 or 200 or 300 paperback copies a month of a book that's when you can start thinking right i'm going to print a thousand get you know a really decent deal on that ship them to Amazon and then they will fulfill them. So to begin with, it'll be create space. But then if you buy a book from my website um, in bundle form, then that will be literally a printer done within about 30 miles of where I live. So I know a few local printers. I always like to have books printed by those who are local where I'm able to go pick it up, make sure it's all you know, looking good before the big day. And that gives me the opportunity to then sign those books. And I always like to try and put a few little bits in the books that get printed by these printers. And then I sell on the website that are going to be different to the ones you buy on Amazon. Because again, I, I want to reward people who come to my site who uh, are buying bundles of five or 10 who are, you know, wanting a signed copy. So, so yeah, I, I, I use both methods and hopefully going forwards, all goes according to plan i will be able to stop using create space just get you know print two three four five ten thousand books at one time and then it just becomes very much like you would when you ship over a, a container of whatever from china and send them to amazon and that's how people buy you know sell these little amazon stores so you're, it's you're lovely to have that flexibility certainly 
So, it's um, good. It means that because back in the day, if you self-published, there wasn't this, you know, print on demand service. So you had no choice but to print a thousand or 10,000 books and well, kind of just keep them in your garage and just hope that people are going to buy them. Whereas now there is that opportunity where if you've got a big enough following and you know the sales are there, buy in bulk, send them to Amazon. You basically like pay a fee, like Amazon win, you win, the reader wins. You know, Amazon are able to kind of like ship everything out on like free postage or cheap postage because they're Amazon. They know how it all works. They've got, you know, the biggest network in the world when it comes to stuff like that. But if you're not of that level and it's not cost effective for you to print that many, you can be like, right, I'm going to involve CreateSpace. And I'm instead of getting $7 for every book I sell, I'm only getting like $2. But again, that's better than laying down, you know, three or $4,000 and having like an entire room of my house taken up of books, <laughs> which is exactly what used to happen when people self-published. So very lucky to have that kind of flexibility in the best of both worlds these days. So does that mean that it's not very important for you to actually sell as many as possible as quickly as possible and try to get on some kind of bestseller list um, once you've published? That is certainly a goal for many people. That is not a goal for me in this, with the success of the stake. You will quite often see people around about five weeks before launch um, start coming up with these book bundles where they say, okay, if you buy 200 books, I provide you $10,000 worth of um, you know, bonuses. If you buy 250 books, you get me to speak, these kind of things. I'm sure people listening will have seen those kind of things by you know your bigger authors. And the deal is that you log on to Amazon, you buy 200 books for Amazon, and then you send them a receipt. And then they're like, okay, you, I can see you've bought 200 books from Amazon. I will send you your bonuses now. And the reason that you buy those 200 books from Amazon rather than directly from their website is because over about five or six weeks before launch, every time someone does that, so let's say over the course of those five or six weeks, a thousand people buy all these books and it creates 10,000 sales. Those sales aren't counted until launch day because they're all classed as pre-orders. So then the moment launch day happens and because they all went through Amazon, Amazon basically sends a massive order in one go. Mm. So if you sell, if there's like 10, 15,000 orders for Amazon, that technically then gives you a good opportunity to become a New York Times bestseller. There's a lot more complications towards that too, because you need to like spread it out. If they all came through Amazon and nothing else, then, you know, the, the bestseller less would see it as a potential, you know, fraud in the system. But for the most part, when you see people offering these big bonus deals, and they're wanting you to buy them either through a bookstore or through Amazon rather than from their website, it's because their aim for launch is to become a best-selling author because becoming a best-selling author has a lot of great traction. You know, it helps you in speaking. It, you know, It's a fantastic tool to use going forward. And obviously, you are still selling a heck of a lot of books, but it's good. So that's, you know, it's good. That isn't my aim with the success mistake. In terms of you know my my audience right now and my authority, I don't think I'm at that level. Hopefully, that is a tactic that I can use for maybe my second book or my third book. But right now, I am just trying to build as bigger audience as possible, reach the right kind of people with a successful mistake, and try and build you know that following that we all crave. 
you know, those those people who are going to have your back and really kind of help you get from, you know, the level you're at to the level you desire to be. So my aim, you know, for the launch of a successful mistake is very much exposure, getting people involved, getting people involved in the journey, exposing them to me, to my work, showing me, showing them that my work is good and worthy of their attention. And yeah, hopefully that can lead to bestseller lists at some point in the future. But but yeah, that's not my aim right now. I must be honest. Well, the book, of course, is called The Successful Mistake. You're interviewing 163 successful and inspiring entrepreneurs about their greatest business mistake. What was the mistake that resonated most with you? Again, there wasn't really one that resonated with me more often than not because that. I've lived through so many of them. And even the ones I haven't lived through, I, I were able to listen and go, you know what? I can totally see where this, um, you know, where this, like this happening to be basically or happening to someone close to me. But um, I mentioned him briefly earlier, Dan Miller. He's mm. the main guy behind 48 Days. Very inspiring guy. Bestseller author himself. Speaker, just an amazing guy. And his story was all about when he found success in like the brick and mortar business back in back in day pre-internet um, or, or pre, you know, when the online world became what it is today. And he told me his story about how he quite literally lost it all, as in owed hundreds of thousand dollars worth of debt, quite a lot of it to the IRS. So serious kind of thing like everyone said he should have taken bankruptcy it was the sensible thing to do it's the easier thing to do but he refused because he wanted to pay back the people he owed money to he's that kind of person he he holds that kind of responsibility in high regards and dan is dan's entire story was just surrounded by this idea of treat, treating people right you know holding your relationships, not just for ones in business, but in your personal life too, to high regard. And the really big thing for me was that Dan didn't go hungry. Like Dan managed to get a job, man. Dan managed to build his company back up because of the amazing support network he had. But had he only started being a good guy when he went bust, like it would have all gone bad. Like nothing would have happened people wouldn't have cared because it's like, well, if you're going to be a terrible guy all your life, but then it's like, oh, well, I'm suffering now, but I'm going to be a good guy because I know then you'll help me out if I'm a good guy. People see through that. The reason they loved him and they still um, helped him during this really dark period of his is because he'd been a good guy up until that point. So Dan's story really resonated with me, showing that you can't take a day off through the good times or the bad times. You can't take a day off from being the best version of who you are. And relationships matter. Those you care about matter. Being generous and helpful and caring. If you're having a good day, be generous. If you're having a bad day, be generous. Just be the best version of you you can be every day. And the moment you start seeing that slip because you're scared, you you know, you think, oh, I don't have enough money. I need to be successful. I need to do this. I need to hustle too much. Like we all got to do what we have to do, right? But if we do it to a point where we are devaluing who we are, we're not being the best version of we of us can be. And I'm not talking about the best version in terms of how much you're worth or how big your business is. I'm talking about being a stuff, like the best person you can be to those who you know. Once you start letting that slack, you're not only hurting yourself now, but you're going to be hurting yourself when you do need their help 
in a year, five years, 10 years, because you're an entrepreneur, man. Like you're going to make mistakes. Like you're going to hit those dark periods. So being a good guy today and tomorrow and the day after is paying you forward for the times when you need it. But beyond that, you're just being the best version of you today. So you're you're helping those around you. You're being, you know, you're bringing value into their world. You're bringing value into your world. So Dan's story was one which resonated with me because it just helped me open my eyes and think, like, I can't take a day off being, you know, the best version I can be. Like, that's not to say I'm not going to have bad days or grumpy days and stuff, but I'm always going to have to take a step back and think, look, even if things aren't great right now, I still can't let that overshadow everything. I still need to make sure I'm being a good guy because if I'm not, then I'm doing everyone a disservice. So Dan's a great um, story and it's one I share in the book. It's one I talk about quite a lot in you know emails and um, podcast sessions and stuff like this. It's just a great one and a truly inspiring one. And I think it is relatable to absolutely everyone, no matter where you are in your journey, what industry you're in. I think that's an absolutely wonderful thought to leave us with. And that is, um, even if you feel like you're in a big, long, dark tunnel, be nice to people because you never know who that person is you're talking to. You never know how they might be able to help you or you might be able to help them in the future. And um, it's so easy to get distracted by the mire that you're in. But if you can possibly still remember that... um, people buy from people and it's all about relationships then that will ensure that you will be successful at some point in the future you won't necessarily know at that moment in time when it is but it will happen if you keep that attitude absolutely and i think uh, something i talk about quite a lot is you need to kind of push down the thought of trying to be successful now i think sometimes we get so fearful on caught up on I need to be successful now like I need to you know make more money now or I need to get to where I am but it's not really about that it's about getting to your version of success at some point it doesn't need to be today it doesn't need to be tomorrow you know it's it's all part of the journey you'll get there when you get there as long as you keep putting your best foot forward and there's going to be a lot of dark days it's hard days speak to any successful entrepreneur out there anyone who you admire and if you get the opportunity to have a really frank and honest conversation with them they will tell you that they have they continue to have days where they worry where money's tight you think they might be rich and having but they've got payroll they'll have the tough times they've got the same worries as you they share the same pains as you and if they aren't feeling it right now they certainly have in the past and they certainly will in the future because we're all human so you just need to appreciate that and think hey today isn't great but it doesn't mean tomorrow won't be and i just need to continue trying to be the best person i can be love those around you you know treasure them value them not just the business ones the personal ones too not just the personal ones the business ones too just treat it all as your best forward and go look today i'm just trying to do the best i can do today and then if you do that every day i i honestly believe then it'll work out who knows to what extent who knows where it'll take you but i think if you just keep putting your best foot forward day in day out I think it leads you to a good place. So when's the book published and how can people get hold of it? The book is coming out. I actually made this decision a few days ago. So this is the first time I've talked about it on online in a, in a conversation like this. It's going to be Tuesday the 14th of June. And we're recording this now, like what, mid? Late, late March. 
March, late March. I don't even know what day. <laughs> it feels like it should be January, but we're somehow in the middle of March, end of March. So yeah, it's coming out in, in the middle of June. People can find out more about me at turndog.co. Um, and and yeah, if, if you're wanting to find out more about the book, it's turndog.co forward slash SM. So SM for successful mistake. And that kind of takes you through to a, a rather detailed landing page that tells you all the ins and outs of what you'll learn in the book. There's a video on there and everything like that, all the stuff you would like. And, and you can sign up for a bit of a welcome pack. And that welcome pack gives you a very sneak peek special look at um, the opening of the book, uh, as well as a few other goodies too. So yeah, you can certainly join the journey there and I encourage you to do so. And when I ask you to introduce yourself, Please do and say that it was David that sent you. I'm always keen to not only know people, but to know where they where they came from, how they came across me in the book. So yeah, it's an exciting, busy couple of months, not just fine-tuning the book and making it absolutely perfect, but getting all the other stuff around it. And like I say, the Successful Mindset Program too, which is going to be huge in my little baby for the foreseeable future. Please do that, dear listener. Pop along to Matt's website and say... You heard him on David's Digital Marketing Radio and um, it was fab to hear from him there and um, you're very looking forward to reading his book. Well, I'm certainly very much looking forward to reading your book, Matt. I'm sure it'll be fabulous. You'll have to... I'm very, I'm excited for you to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope um, we'll have you on again in, say, six months' time or so and discuss um, how you've sold so many tens of thousands of <laughs> copies and uh, uh, what your next step in the journey is. That, that would be, that would be wonderful. It would be great. Yeah. I would happy to come back at any time. And yeah, maybe next time I can um, go into a bit of the, what I did around launch because the things that I've got planned, like I can't really go into the full ins and outs around the plans for launch because it's pre-launch right now, but um, the stuff that I'm doing for launch of this can apply to pretty much any type of book product show project um I'm, I'm really excited to unravel it and to learn and i would love to come back and show you the full ins and outs i think a, a content market a digital market like you I, I think you would certainly get a lot from it you're a master of the teas sir <laughs> matt thank Sorry, you so much for coming on <laughs> you're, you're, it was great to have you on again oh pleasure all man david thank you very much so with thanks to Matt and thanks to you dear listener too if you enjoyed what Matt shared today here's how you can help go to your friend's iPhone go to the podcast app and search for Digital Marketing Radio click on the show then hit the subscribe button and make them listen too finally I'm also host of another live show every Friday called This Week in Organic head over to thisweekinorganic.com to find out more about that but that's all for now Until we meet again, adios and thanks again, Matt. Great episode.